Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this week by Squarespace and StoryWorth. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name's Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my fellow host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. Well, our uh, our many episodes long uh, Gemini series is going to wrap up today. I predict. Yes, it is. We've got the last couple of missions and some uh, weird ideas people had, mostly the people who built the hardware, <laughs> as we will see, uh, expanding expanding Gemini to other things. Um, do we want to talk about what we're going to do with Apollo for a second? Yeah, I, I thought maybe that would be a good idea. So we had, um, obviously, after Gemini comes Apollo, and we were talking about different ways we could handle it. We could roll right into it. We could wait a little bit and roll into it. And I realized that 2018 marks the 50th anniversary, the beginning of a series of 50th anniversaries for crewed Apollo missions, Um, rolling all the way up to, of course, 2019 will be the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And then into the 2020s, as there are other missions there. And so what I proposed was, what if we time our Apollo stuff to the 50th anniversary of the very th- various things and kind of do it upright, do like special episodes about the Apollo missions? Yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, this series will now stretch from 2017 to 2022. <laughs> yep. So stick around for, for liftoff episode 109 where, yeah, yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. So, uh, it's going to be fun. Um, so the next couple of episodes, we're going to sort of get through all of the pre crude stuff so we can, um, so we can catch up a little bit. Um, I think we'll hit Apollo one at the 51 year anniversary will be one year late for that and then we'll be on track um yep i'm looking forward to this it's gonna be fun um i've enjoyed uh mercury and gemini a lot i i feel like i've learned so much we're not giving these missions a ton of time each right um so i think with apollo we're going to be able to dive really deep and and get into a bunch of details that uh, we just couldn't otherwise so this is a good idea uh and i'm excited about it so we're going to try to do some special Apollo episodes, so that that should be fun. Those should be like, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to take that deeper dive, and those should be really great. Um, so we're setting the bar high, but I think I think we're going to be able to meet it. Um, also, for people who are wondering about other things that we're planning on doing, since there are going to be some gaps in terms of like kind of walking, we walked through the solar system, we did the early space missions. Um, among the things that I want to talk about in the new year, sort of a new year's resolution kind of thing here. Um, I'm reading a book right now that is really great about um, some early days of rocketry and the space programs. And so I, I definitely want to do an episode about, uh, about the Soviet space program in the early days. And then um hopefully maybe another episode about the early days of American rocketry, like leading up to uh, those rockets that they put people on <laughs> and sent them into space. So I think some some of that early days kind of stuff, maybe we'll do a little bit of historical stuff on those in the new year, because I'm, I'm really, I finally found a book that gives me what I want in terms of, uh, it's called Space Race. We can put a link in the show notes. Uh, people should read it. It's It's really good. But we'll go, we'll also go into some more detail about that sort of stuff uh, sometime yeah, in the new that year. Sounds, that sounds really good. Uh, I'm excited about, about starting this book. You sent me a Kindle copy the other day, so thank you for that. Um, yes. It's, it's a, I, 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 got, I waited until I was like 
20% into it. I was like, well, it could turn bad. It could <laughs> yeah. be bad in the end. I shouldn't send this to Stephen yet. And finally, I read through one part and I was like, I'm just sending this to Stephen now. And there's also a BBC um, uh, docudrama on Netflix called Space Race. That is, this book was like the companion to that. And uh, I haven't watched that yet, but I'm going to I'm gonna watch that too because I'm, I'm pretty excited. I think it's four episodes, but it's a... Uh, it was a good find because I don't have any memory of this at all. And uh, and it's just like a cheap Kindle book. Uh, it sounds like maybe they did a high prestige version of this when the BBC show aired. And then it looks like maybe even the rights went back to the author and that the author could sell it like without any of the photos or anything. But she could sell it like just as the text of the book. So it's like four dollars or something on Amazon. It's really good. It's really good if people are interested in the history of um of rocketry and the uh, quite honestly a lot of it spins out of the german scientists who ended up building the v2 mm-hmm. rockets during world war ii and uh and i learned some things about like the v2 rockets that i i didn't even know before like how um during the blitz the british got really good at hearing the german planes coming and taking cover and when they started firing rockets that were faster than the speed of sound the first thing that you would hear is the explosion yeah. And even more eerie, after the explosion, you would then hear the sound of the rocket getting closer to you because of the way that the speed of sound works, which is super eerie. Like everybody would hear the rocket coming after the explosion. Super. I never read a detail like that before. It was wild stuff. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll dig into that stuff in the new year and we'll let everybody know um, when we're going to do that. But um, there's a lot of fun. Turns out space is vast. So we got plenty we to do. talk about. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about some more recent news than the v2 and its and its work okay so uh trump has signed a lunar directive so this has been coming this is not a surprise that the space council run by trump's vice president mike pence has been talking about um pausing the the mars stuff and going back to the moon uh first maybe only but at least you know hopefully first uh, this is kind of a mixed bag of news because it's really, on one hand, this this drastically changes yet again, which we can talk about, uh, what NASA is working on and what they are prioritizing. But on the other hand, like, <laughs> there's one sentence in this press release from NASA that says it all. Work towards the new directive will be reflected in NASA's fiscal year 2019 budget request next year. So this isn't something that is changing a bunch of stuff today. And... And to a degree, that's all right, because the SLS and Orion were already on, well, as on track as they are, sidestep that conversation today, uh, as on track as they are, they could, they're being built to do either. And so it, they don't have to like radically change direction with SLS to to go to the moon. And it's not like they were building something that could go to Mars, but not go to the moon, because the moon is closer and easier to get to. The work they're doing now uh, will more or less carry over. But there are a lot of things that need to be put in place still, like a lunar lander. Um, you know, there's questions about uh, the deep space gateway, what where what its status is in this new plan. Uh, I've read some conflicting things about that. I'm not sure anyone actually has, like, the final say. Uh, that being a, a, a space station in cislunar space, you know, beyond low Earth orbit. Um, so there's a lot of questions still. It's still, I mean, this was only signed uh, about a week and a half ago. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of stuff will be coming out over the coming months, all the individual pieces needed. 
Uh, and I'm curious, you know, what, what do you think about this? We've been talking about this, I feel like, since, you know, for the last, you know, nine or ten months. Um, how do you feel now that it's finally here? I don't know. I mean, I, again, it feels like this is just restating what we've already heard. So it's just another it's just another step in the process. I did uh, laugh at the NASA story that says the policy grew from an, a unanimous recommendation by the National Space Council. That felt a little like a... Uh, like a, a an election in a communist mm-hmm. country, right? It was unanimous, said the people who were all appointed by the same guy to do the yeah. same thing. It's like, all right, yeah, big shocker. Um, my problem with this is what we've talked about before, which is every time there's a change of hands of the executive branch of the U.S. government, the space policy change or changes. And so you go from, we're going to Mars, we're going to the moon, we're going to Mars, we're going to the moon, Um and the problem with that is I, I really do believe in, in, you know, not following the sunk cost fallacy and saying um, we spent a lot of money on this, so let's just write it out, even though it's not actually what we want. Um, I appreciate that. At the same time, at some point, um, follow through matters <laughs> and you can't you cannot keep having a series of. 15-year roadmaps that change every eight years because you'll never get there because the roadmap, right? It's just our 20-year roadmaps or whatever, and they change every four or eight or 12 years. It's you'll never get there. So I think going back to the moon is great. My my feeling is like, let's go, let's, let's do something with human spaceflight. Like let's get out of low earth orbit. Let's do something. There are steps along the way. Let's do those steps. And and the one thing that I'm hopeful for in all of this is that this is all meant to be that they talk about the moon, but it's all meant to be kind of like a staged approach where it is like the deep space gateway, which is we're going to do a space. We've done a space station in low, low earth orbit. Now we're going to put something that's kind of like a space station in lunar orbit, let's say, or, or in cislunar space somewhere uh, where it can have a, a uh, it's further away from the earth. And then we can practice going out to it and, and then and maybe use that as the gateway to land on the moon. And then once we've done that, then we can start talking about going to an asteroid or putting one of those around Mars and then going to Mars and orbiting Mars and then then send people down onto the surface of Mars, right? Like take those steps and kind of roll out a, a multi-step process that can start sooner. Because once the ball is rolling, I feel like... Uh, this all becomes more real. And then it's harder to kind of like say, no, 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 no. We're not going to do it this way. We're going to do it this totally different way. Um, Of course, also part of me thinks this is all just rearranging deck deck chairs. Not sorry to use the Titanic (laughs) metaphor here, but what I mean by that is it's like we're just... Every, the reason that these things can keep going back and forth right now is that nothing is happening because the, the... rockets required to take us there are still in development very slowly like we haven't seen it and so we have to wait for that so we can argue all we want about like where we go next uh and and we should make a decision and stick with it but the truth is that it's a little bit academic i think when we don't have the ability in the next couple of years to actually do any of it because we just don't have right. the rockets to take we're, us we're in such early stages to a degree it doesn't it kind of doesn't matter 
Right. And this this might be a little this might you could cover it up a little bit by having if if a commercial crew was already up and running. I feel like that's running in parallel, right? Like I think I think the pressure on human spaceflight policy in the US would be lessened by SpaceX or or uh, or any other company um, taking humans to mm-hmm. the space station where we could be like, we're back in business, baby, right? Like American rockets taking American astronauts to the space station, hooray, would like lighten the load a little bit on these delays and on not having a clear plan about like, when are we going to send up somebody? Like, do we have a rocket ta- capable of taking somebody into lunar orbit? Because uh, once we get that, we could do that. And that would be a thing we could do, but we don't right now. So at the very least, you'd get that like, look, but look over there. <laughs> that SpaceX rocket just took people to the space station. So we're we're progress, right? And right now it's just this frustrating. This will this will go down in history as this, um, I, I hope, as this frustrating interregnum between the space shuttle and what comes next. And I think that things are lined up to have a lot of great things coming next. But it does, you get the distinct feeling now that it's going to be, this period is not, you know, originally it was going to be like a couple of years, three years, whatever. And now it feels like it's going to be more like 10 years. Yeah, at least. <laughs> eight years. Uh, it's going to be a long time where like the shuttle program shut down and everything else was not ready to pick up the slack. And it took years to get every, the, all the balls rolling. So, hey, I'm happy that this is this process is starting. I think doing um, uh, the Mar- Mars is a big step, and if we want to go back to the moon and uh, spend some more time there, it's a lot easier to get to the moon. But it's still not Earth orbit, and so there's a lot we can learn from there. And this time, unlike Apollo, using the moon as a as a lab for also going to Mars and thinking about it as a stepping stone is a good way to get to Mars. So, plus the moon is close and with modern technology it's entirely possible that we could do a lot on the moon that we couldn't do in 1970. For all the people who say, you know, we we've receded so much in terms of space tech that we can't go to the moon and we could in the early 70s and late 60s. Today's technology, we could potentially do a whole lot more on the surface and create a base there, and right, and and uh, have a transfer point and have ships go out and ha- use our sort of knowledge that we built up with things like the ISS to do that in lunar space, which then leads to doing it in Martian space. But you know, you got to start somewhere, and you got to you got to put a stake in the ground, and then you have to actually have to stick with that policy. So my my hesitation here, if I have any, is that the nice thing about if this was I really wish that that we had at least a little bit of bipartisanship in terms of space policy, only because um, that's the thing that hurts us the most is that is this jerking back and forth between different um, governments. So we'll see if this one sticks. Couldn't say it better. I think I think that's the fundamental frustration I have as well that we can't the parties can't get on the same page about it. So um, and I'm not opposed. Like uh, I'm not definitely not opposed to lunar missions. I think my complaint is aligned with aligned with yours like i just want a direction that sticks long enough to do something <laughs> yeah and if it and if it gets us toward mars i think that's great because i think that's where we yeah. should try to go but um but the moon has lots of things interesting things about it so um we could do that too i moon base alpha there sign me up um not personally i'm not gonna go to the moon <laughs> but you know in general the idea of that you got this jason you can do it so another um pre-flight checklist item uh what can't google do <laughs> that's a good question this is an interesting story. So Google used its machine learning technology, we talk about this when we talk about tech on our other podcasts, to analyze data from Kepler. So Kepler 
as listeners to this podcast probably know, is the uh, is the satellite that is searching for exoplanets. And the problem with searching for exoplanets is what you're looking for is faint changes in the light from a star because the way Kepler works is a planet goes in front of its star and it slightly dims the star by blocking part of the light from the surface. And that's how you detect exoplanets using this method. Um, so what NASA did was it trained uh, its machine learning technology on Kepler data with known exoplanets, confirmed exoplanets, and then ran it on all the Kepler data. And it found a couple of exoplanets that had not been confirmed before. So there's a new, uh, in, in a system that already had uh, seven planets that had been detected, there was an eighth planet detected, which is Kepler 90i, orbits its star every 14.4 days. And that was detected by Google's machine learning. And I think this is an interesting story that is not, I mean, it's great for Google, but it's its not told as much as it probably is going to be told that using machine learning, like there's so much data from telescopes. There's so much data and astronomers already are using techniques uh, to, like complicated uh, computer techniques to find signal in the noise but um this is like a whole other level on that and there's going to be more and more of this right because like the the like like so much of of finding objects in deep space you know like uh, kuiper belt objects and things is looking at is lining up images of the same part of the sky over multiple nights and seeing if something moves and then verifying what it is, right? Like the more you can do to detect that, and they already do some of that. I think Mike Brown and his team uh, wrote software that would like detect when motion was detected between plates, and then they would flag those, and then those would come up, and it was this whole thing. But like machine learning allows even more um, automated scanning of of signal for noise, or noise for, sorry, noise for signal. Um, And this is a good example of it actually bearing fruit where, you know, they found a couple of exoplanets. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I suspect we're going to see a lot more of this in the future, right? That they can just mm-hmm. feed these things tons of data and and it just chew on them and then, you know, get results as results are checked, you know, by a, a scientist and then, you know, it gets the badge right. of approval. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think what it what it means because, like I said, there's already automated tools out here. But this what this means is that these kinds of tools will let scientists search larger data sets and will float out things that would not have been or weren't noticed mm-hmm. by humans, and then they get checked by humans, right? So and and this process goes on, and you train them further, and they get better at it. But yeah, this is the great thing about machine learning applied to astronomy, which is machine machines can scan huge data sets and see things that we just can't. And so, yeah, there are going to be dramatic discoveries like this that continue to happen where an algorithm pops it up and uh, then a human confirms it. And, you know, I'm sure, I mean, this already happens, but I'm just saying like using this modern machine learning stuff, this is going to keep happening because this is actually a perfect application of machine learning. Uh, so talking about the International Space Station, a second ago, uh, SpaceX had a launch uh, in the, the past fortnight. Uh, it's, it's notable because it was the first time that a pre-flown Falcon and Dragon have been used together. Um, and uh, the first time that NASA has, u- has used a pre-flown Falcon 9 to uh, service the space station up until this point. They've only used new ones. Um, a big, right. uh, a big uh, 
uh, step, I think, uh, I think we spoke about this, big step in, in SpaceX's plan to, to reuse these things. Uh, NASA's obviously a giant yeah, client. Na- they want them na- to be on board. Yeah, NASA tends to be a new car yeah. buyer, not a used car buyer. But here they, they went, because ultimately this gets the cost of these launches down to reuse these parts. And so NASA kind of wanted to see the proof of concept. But, you know, here we go. We got a Dragon capsule bringing supplies to the International Space Station on a previously flown um, stage. And that's pretty great. Also, I, I watched this launch live. I happened to, it happened to be like at 7.45 in the morning or something on a weekend. And I was in bed looking at Twitter and drinking my tea and and there was a tweet about um oh the spacex launch is going to happen in 20 minutes and i looked and it was like the tweet was 15 minutes ago <laughs> it's done like, good i can watch this live and so i went and i watched it and it was great what made me laugh is spacex has done so many of these now and first off it's funny like i've come to know all the cast of characters on the space spacex yeah. webcast like i know who those people are they're all spacex employees um I, I when i first talked about this i remember saying something about how they're the you know spacex went out and hired some young fresh-faced people to anchor their broadcast it turns out no they are these are young fresh-faced people who are spacex employees and rocket scientists which is great um and the other thing i noticed is they've done so many of these that i feel like they keep trying to find new ways of showing mm-hmm. their launch so for this launch they stayed on the ground camera. And part of this is the weather cooperating because you know and I know from going to launches at uh, at Kennedy Space Center that in Florida there's a lot of moisture and there are a lot of clouds. And sometimes there'll be clouds in the area. We had, a, we had an overcast layer for the shuttle launch, right? And so it's hard. You got to be lucky to follow a rocket up far in with with it staying in the shot of your camera they got lucky because this launch basically they took a camera angle from the ground following it all the way to stage separation where you could actually see the first stage do the separation and boost back burn which is you know, we know that it happens and we've seen it from onboard, but this was the whole way from the ground. And then they flipped over to kind of like the internal cameras. And that was pretty great because that's not something that I, I think I've seen before where they just kept that angle. Um, because, you know, for anyway, for variety's sake, I think is why they did it, which is funny that they've done so many of these now that they're doing that. But also the clouds cooperated. So, uh, yeah, it was great. So SpaceX proceeds apace. We just got to uh, we just got to get the. Uh, the Falcon Nine, right? The um, the, or no, the Falcon Heavy yeah. has to has to go, which is early in 2018. So that's the next uh, stage, as it were, for uh, SpaceX, I guess. But these are still progressing, and then hopefully, I haven't heard any any word about what's going on in terms of um, human spaceflight certification for Dragon. I think they have to launch. I think their next step is that they have to launch the Dragon capsule that's that's rated for humans, um, and they'll do that in a non crewed. Uh, mission and the, they have to do some of that and i haven't heard when they're going to have that capsule ready because that that is the this is the big thing on the to-do list is when are we going to get people up on one of these um commercial mm-hmm. launches and it just hasn't happened yet yeah hopefully uh, hopefully soon uh you know space spacex has some competition in jeff bezos blue origin uh mm-hmm. we've talked about this before they are uh behind some of these other companies but they're making up uh progress pretty quickly they had a uh a test flight uh last week 
with an upgraded uh, booster, their new Shepard. Um, they also flew on this the uh, their their crew capsule that uh, has some crash test dummies in it, and their video on YouTube like it's from like the crash test dummies point of view, and it's actually kind of hilarious. Um, the 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 uh, the kid in me just thinks crash test dummies are like the funniest thing. Um, but, uh, it was another successful test. They are on a string of successes now, uh, with these, uh, these suborbital flights, you know, they're, they're still suborbital, but they are, um, they're making up, making up progress. The crew capsule they boast has the largest windows of any crew capsule being, being built, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's something to say, I guess you want to be able to see, but, um, they are, uh, they're just they're catching up, and they uh, you know they claim they're going to be ready for crew, um, actual crew here you know before too long. So we will see how that goes. Uh, they too are working on their next generation booster uh, to to get orbital. Um, you know they're kind of doing this other stuff first. I think a lot of companies and even like NASA's vehicles have have worked on the launch vehicle first, and then and then worried about the capsule. Um, with SLS, they're they are more at the same time with Orion. Um, but Blue Origin, I think, has even done it even the other way around a little bit. This crew capsule is getting close to being ready to go, uh, and they haven't they haven't launched their their next vehicle vehicle yet. Oh, I um I do have some real time follow up. Oh by the way, I've I, I looked it up. Um, so so it looks like SpaceX is planning to launch their crewed version of the Dragon capsule. It's currently in set for April. And the idea there is they're going to fly it and dock it with the ISS and then undock it and bring it back and do the whole like thing with no people on it. They're also going to then follow that with an in-flight abort test because they want to they want to shoot it off and then handle an abort so that it, it, it you know, they can yeah. test the safety You mean not features. just an ejection seat like Jim and I? What? <laughs> What an idea. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> and then Boeing is the other player here. Boeing is also planning sort of in summer to do a, a Starliner yes. flight test. And then um, and then it sounds like later in the year, SpaceX and Boeing are both hoping to do crewed flight tests. So, you know, with space stuff, everything slips, but... It might be the 2018 is the year we get some uh, real uh, commercial crew action going on. I hope so. Yeah, me too. You want to tell us about what's going on at Juno? Yeah, a really quick one. Um, the Great Red Spot, turns out, is not just great. It is deep, at least 200 miles deep and maybe a lot more. This is one of those things that we didn't really know before Juno, which is quite how big and how deep this storm is, the huge red spot on Jupiter that's just a giant storm bigger than the Earth, a lot bigger than the Earth. And we could only see the cloud tops, but now um, we can uh, we can see deeper with Juno and found that it is at least 200 miles deep, but that's as far as Juno can see. It may be deeper. This actually solves one of the questions about the Great Red Spot, which is that it is warmer than it should be, which is probably, you know, like hurricanes. This is what's powering it is that all that energy, all that heat energy Um and it turns out that uh, this is the answer, is that there is obviously an upwelling of heat from deep inside the Jupiter atmosphere. We don't know how deep that is helping drive this. Now, why that upwelling is there, and maybe it's just kind of a random part of the process of Jupiter. What we said, I think, on our last show is that what Juno has really taught a lot of people who are uh, scientists studying Jupiter is that there is a whole lot that is not understood about the processes of Jupiter. And Juno is giving us a lot of data 
Uh, and scientists love this, right? A lot of data that they have to look at and go, why does it do it this way? Like, why? But now we, we have an idea that this great red spot is not just uh, wide, like we already knew, but it is deep. It is coming from way down inside Jupiter. Um, so that's uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, our friend, uh, which is, I don't think has a, a name yet. I don't think they've wrapped that up, but 2014 MU69, everyone's favorite. Yeah, soon, soon to be called Peanut, probably. Yeah, I hope, yeah that's a good one. Uh, it's New Horizons' uh, second target, uh, New Year's of n- of next year. Uh, yeah, New Year's 2019. 2019. Um, while out. <clears throat> We're still be in the Apollo series then, so we'll still be here. We will be. <laughs> uh, so it looks like uh, 2014 MU69 may have uh, a small moon. Uh, so this is uh, looking, again, at the same sort of thing we're looking at at exoplanets looking at at the sh- at the dip in light as an object passes in front of uh, a star so this is these stars are way in the background but there are uh, images captured over the last year three of them uh, that seem to indicate that there is a a small moon uh, out here with this object now it may be that th- this object is actually kind of two that are, that are uh, basically spinning around each other, you know, and as opposed to like what we think about our moon, but uh, it it makes this a binary system, and it could suggest some things. It could explain some things about its orbit that have been previously unexplained, um, and it means that that flyby could be uh, could be of two two bodies and not just one. That'd be pretty cool. It would be cool. A little bonus. All right. The, the, and at which point I think it's like peanut and cashew or something. They go to another nut in, in, in order to be – that's the whole nut theme is about that it's mixed nuts out there in the Kuiper Belt. I mean, I think if you're going to do it, you got to go all the way, right? You can't – Yeah, it's got to do it all the way. <laughs> yeah. Peanut and cashew, and then there'll be another little body, and they'll say, well, that's almond, and they're just going to go with it. That's – I think the – I'm, I'm in favor of the nut theme for this object, but I don't get to choose. Yeah. Well, if you vote, you can kind of help choose – you can help choose. Yeah, I guess that's true. So uh, one more thing. This is not this is liftoff related in a way. And so I wanted to mention it. It's kind of the world's colliding here. Um, so Apple is launching a video service at some point, we assume, because they're, they hired TV executives and they're buying a lot of shows. And we wanted to at least mention one of those shows that Apple has now purchased is from Ron Moore, who was the guy who did the relaunch of Battlestar Galactica. And currently does um, Outlander on Stars, and he worked on Star Trek for a long time in the 90s. And he is back with a show whose premise is, what if the space race never ended? So if you can imagine something that's probably set in something similar to the present day, although it's possible that it's set in the future, but an alternate history where the Soviets slash Russians and the U.S. and who knows who else continue to try and one-up each other in outer space. Uh, and and uh, so presumably this is going to be a world where, you know, the moon has been explored and other parts of the solar system have been explored. And uh, we don't know anything about it other than the base premise, but it's intriguing to mention the space race and talk about what if it never ended. Uh, anyway, that's all we know. They'll presumably cast people and, and say more about it at some point. And given how long it takes to make television, check back in late 2018 or, I don't know, probably 2019 when this season, because it's not just a pilot episode, they're gonna, they are gonna they bought the whole season. So they'll, they'll, they'll cast it and make it the whole season worth and then release it somewhere 
owned by Apple sometime. So, you know, just uh, put a bookmark in that, that Ron Moore is coming back into uh, science fiction with a space race alt history thing. And that could be cool. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Enter the offer code LIFTOFF at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. You should make your next move with Squarespace. They let you create a website for your next idea. You get a unique domain name. You get to use award-winning templates and much more. Maybe you need to create an online store. Maybe you're looking to showcase your work in a portfolio. Or maybe you want to be like Jason and write the next big blog. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform. They let you do just that. And there's nothing to install. There's no security patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about that stuff because Squarespace, they've got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and you get access to all those award-winning templates. They're beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. We use Squarespace at Relay for our blog and our merchandise store, and it makes all of that stuff super easy. I'm really busy. I didn't want to have to worry about running an e-commerce store and worry about credit card processing and a design that worked. Squarespace just handles it all so I can go about my business. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you, dear listener, can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. And when you do decide to sign up, because I know you will, you can use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. We thank Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. All right. Back back in Gemini. It's small in here. It's tight in here. Hi, Steve. It is. You're right next to me. The two of us have been in this capsule for many weeks together. Mm. It's getting a little stale in here, Jason. It just is. Crack, just crack the window. Get a little fresh. Oh, wait. Oh, no. We're in space. Uh, as we talked about at the top of the show, we're wrapping this up. Uh, we're going to pick up at Gemini 10, whose launch, as we will see, was a little bumpy. Uh, it lift off a uh, pro- propellant umbilical, became snared, and ripped off the service tower, and remained attached to the rocket. I just, you know... <laughs> Just wanted to hitch a ride. It doesn't seem aerodynamic or safe. Small. Anyway, look, all of us want to go into space, right? Why would the umbilical not just want to take this opportunity to go into outer space? It's true. Yeah, I I like the ambition show, you know, really a go-getter. Yeah, that's great. Um, But the release lanyard that failed to uncouple during launch, you're fired. Sorry. That's just, it's unacceptable. So Gemini 10 was crewed by John Young. And his his name will come back later. Woo! Um, and uh, Michael Collins, and it lifted off. His name will also come back later. Lifted off on July 18, nineteen sixty six. Gemini 10's objectives included two EVAs, two separate spacewalks, two rendezvous. This is so ambitious, and flying higher than any previous American mission. After finding his sextant to be difficult to orient, isn't that great? We're in outer space and we're using a sextant, just like we were out in a boat in the ocean. (laughs) Uh, So after he tried the sextant and was like, this is not working for me, Michael Collins relied on ground computers to guide the capsule to the Agena Agena docking uh, test vehicle. Um, after being out of plane slightly, two additional correction burns had to be made using 40% of the Gemini's fuel. Wow. 
it was decided to keep the Gemini docked to the Agena as long as possible. Once you c- capture that thing, just don't let it go because it's, it's not, it does not want <laughs> unless, to be caught. Unless it's tumbling through space out of control, <laughs> then, yeah, then the, you can let go. And the Agena had fuel on it. So the idea there was that as long as they were attached to the Agena, if they needed to do any more altitude uh, or sorry, attitude corrections, any um, changes, they could use the Agena's fuel to do that instead of their own since they had used so much of it, which is smart. Yep. Uh, so that's what they did. They burned the Agena motor for 80 seconds, boosting Gemini 10 higher than any previous missions. A record that would last, get this, all the way until Gemini 11. <laughs> uh, you got to feel bad for some of the, some of these crews, right? It's like the, uh, hey, we landed closer on target than anybody. And then three days later, it gets, you know, halved again. That's what but, happens when you're just pushing things forward. It's, it's true. Uh, records are made to be broken, Steven. Uh, at this uh, at this height, they were in line to meet the expired and I would say cursed Agena from Gemini 8. After eight hours of rest, because you need to get some sleep in, Collins undertook his first EVA. This was called a stand-up EVA. We haven't talked about this yet, but basically you get suited up, as does your capsule partner, because you're going to open the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then basically you stand on your seat with kind of your torso out of the capsule. <laughs> um so it's like uh you know it's like a, a kid like, leaning out leaning out a, a a car window or something. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like it's like a dog sticking its head out the co- <laughs> of a car window. Yeah. Sorry, Michael Collins, but come on. Yeah, uh, taking lots of photos of stars as part of an experiment. A lot of these later Gemini missions, there's a lot of photography on them to see how cameras behaved in the vacuum of space. That was obviously going to be a huge deal when it came to lunar missions being able to capture photography, capture video, and eventually beam video back. And also, this is interesting because um, they used film to record wavelengths that weren't that are blocked by the Earth's atmosphere, right? Which is kind of a yes. cool idea. Um, uh, so in fact, these pictures Collins took were in ultraviolet to, to, to capture the uh, Southern Milky Way. That's pretty cool. Uh, it is real cool. After uh, orbital sunrise, Collins then photographed a color plate on the side of the spacecraft, to see if film reproduced colors accurately in space. I mean, we're talking about some basic stuff here, but really it was going to be so important in Apollo. So you're going to see a lot of this on the rest of this episode today. Yeah. You got to check your white balance. This is also true with, um, like even today, like Mars probes usually have a color target mm-hmm. on them so that they can do accurate. They, they take a shot of the color target and they know how to adjust the color to make it um make it legitimate to make it like this is what human eyes would see because you, you know color balance is is tricky um so collins after he stretched his legs for about uh for you know for a while actually taking all those pictures um but his eyes hurt they were they were you know he they had they had uh both of them were having irritated eyes during the last part of this stand-up eva it turns out there was a leak in the oxygen supply mm. of lithium hydroxide, which is not something you want to breathe or have in your eyes. This is worse than cutting onions, I think. <laughs> so, th- so they they stopped the the uh, the EVA six minutes early, sat back down, closed the hatch, and uh, and then purged the uh, the lithium hydroxide, and and their eyes felt better. Um, and then came the big square dance with the Agenas, where they undocked from their Agena and caught up with the Agena that had been left behind by Gemini 8. Uh, so that um, that went well. They did station keeping with this Agena, again, flying in formation, staying the, the same distance apart. Uh, at this point, Collins undertook his second EVA. This time he got to go all the way outside. Oh! Um, 
these capsules had micro meteorite collectors on the side of them um, to look at tiny bits of debris the spacecraft had encountered. Unfortunately, this collector floated out of the cabin sometime later during the EVA and was lost. I guess you got, <laughs> I guess they forgot, you know, you can't sit things down because they just float uh, away. It's kind of a bummer. Well, it sounds dumb, but this is the learning process, right? Like yeah. these are these are all the this is how you learn about how to do a space mission is you run these test space missions and you learn like, oh, don't do that. That'll just float away and that's not good. So um, Collins, among the things he was tasked with, was further testing the handheld maneuvering unit found on earlier missions. Um, This is the, you know, jetpack, basically. He traveled to the Agena, but he couldn't find a place to grab onto the spacecraft. Um, The HHMU failed after about 39 minutes of use, and therefore that was the end of the EVA. Um, They had to, you know, he had a tether, a 50-foot tether, Um, which is great because you don't want to float away in outer space when your HHMU fails and be lost forever. Nice. Have a tether. Unfortunately, this 50-foot tether was a bear to get back in the spacecraft. And so they did what no camper should ever do, which is they just unhooked it and threw it away and went back inside. So there's a 50-foot tether out there somewhere. It's uh, with the micrometeorite collector altogether. Just hanging out. Gemini 10 included, ironically, 10 science experiments looking at radiation levels, uh, like we said, the use of film cameras in space and more. Uh, The capsule carries spectrometers to look at potential radiation doses. Again, because of their height, they are further away from the protection of the Earth's atmosphere, and they wanted to make sure that, hey, if we send these guys to the moon, they're not going to come back cooked. Um, that all went well, and Gemini 10 splashed down after just three days, a very busy three days in space, just three miles from target. That brings us to Gemini 11. We move on. September 1966. These just keep coming fast and furious, don't they? It was July, and now it's September, and we're back. This is Pete Conrad, who, again, you will hear about some more down the road, and Richard Gordon on board. They repeated... Uh, Gemini 10 sequence of docking with the Agena and using its motor to raise up at the Apogee went up to 850 miles, still the record for the highest orbit of the Earth. This is a record that sticks. Yes. 850 miles. That is a that is a, a high Earth orbit. It's way up the, there. The crew docked and undocked four times because they are show-offs <laughs> and still had sufficient maneuvering fuel for an unplanned fifth rendezvous jerks before returning to a lower orbit so i guess what we're what we're learning here is they figured out how to do rendezvous at last and so they did a lot of them yeah got that all under control Uh, gordon's first eva was planned to last two hours and involved fastening a hundred foot tether so we've upgraded from last time uh it was stored in the agena's docking collar to the gemini's docking bar he was able to do this, but as with previous EVAs, uh, fatigue quickly set in, and the EVA was terminated after just an hour. Uh, later, though, Gordon successfully performed a second EVA standing up. Again, this is one of those stand-up EVAs with your, your head and shoulders sticking out um, with lots of, fo- lots of photography. These obviously weren't as tiring because you're not moving around. You're not pulling yourself uh, along the outside of the spacecraft, and he lasted more than two hours this time. Hmm. Very nice. 
Uh, Twelve experiments were carried out aboard Gemini 11. Not 11? Come on. Didn't get with the program. Including the testing of television equipment that would be used in the Apollo missions. Again, they're beta testing everything for future missions here. And Gemini 11 splashed down only 1.5 miles from its target. Getting close. Everything is improving every single time. That is, that is one of the messages of Gemini. If you think about like, well, it was two guys and what else was it about? The answer is they really did, as we get later in the Gemini missions, they really did work out a lot of the kinks of spaceflight in these missions. This was about not making, you know, firsts into space like with Mercury, but really like how do we do all of this so that we can go to the moon? All right. You want to tell us about our second sponsor? Sure. This episode of Liftoff brought to you by StoryWorth, a new way to bring the family together. Everyone has a family member who tells those great stories. StoryWorth's creator wanted a way to capture all of those funny, poignant tales in one place. They make it easy for your loved ones to share their life stories with weekly emailed story prompts and questions you might not think to ask. And then at the end of the year, they get their stories bound in a beautiful hardcover book, sleek with a black and white interior, a color cover, and up to 480 pages so you and your loved ones can relive those memories and pass the book on to future generations. Here's how StoryWorth works. You buy a subscription for someone important to you, and every week, StoryWorth will send them an email with a question about their life. They don't have to sit down and write a book. They just get an email that they answer once a week. They can email back their story. They could record it over the phone. Um, after a year, these stories are bound into that beautiful book for them to keep. It's a great way to learn more about someone. The questions are very cleverly designed to evoke entertaining, surprising, and moving responses. And it's also a great way to stay in touch with family members who might be a little further away than you'd like. It's super flexible. You can write stories and upload photos by email, on the web, in their app. You can share the stories with, with as many people as you want. You just invite them via email. Save and edit all your stories on storyworth.com. It's all secure and private by default. You get to choose who gets to see your stories. I tried this service out. Uh, the, the questions really are very thought-provoking and interesting, and there is something really relieving about having them come once a week and not, like, in a big pile. Like, once a week, answering an email or talking on the phone and giving an answer, it's pretty easy. So if you can think of somebody in your life that you would like to kind of get their story it's not going to be a burden on them to do it this way. The holidays are here. Obviously, it's not too late to get someone a gift they'll love. Go to storyworth.com slash liftoff right now and give the gift of stories to someone you care about. And because you're a listener to this show, you'll get $20 off. So get that Christmas present out of the way. Go to storyworth.com slash liftoff. Storyworth, a new way to bring the family together. Thanks for supporting Liftoff and giving a perfect gift this Christmas. All right. We're here. We are at the last... Gemini mission. Gemini 12 lifted off less than two years after the first crude launch. You know, you said one of the, one of the stories is the successful run-up of, of making things more complicated, more difficult, proving that all the steps of Apollo were possible. Uh, and I agree with that, but I think right after that is the rapid succession of missions that they could, they could get these things um, in the air quickly uh, that they had the pipeline all in place. They had all the uh, all the the vehicles and the capsules and all the science stuff all ready to go, uh, where they could really go quickly. And, and really, the the biggest uh, issues there were you know that they had a failed Agenia launch, and then they had you know they had a couple um, a couple of crew members get killed in that accident. But it was a very smooth program, other than those things. Uh, this was the 18th crewed American spaceflight overall. James Lovell and Buzz Aldrin, some names that should sound familiar. Yeah. Hmm. Um, 
they flew a mission, and Gemini 12 was all about proving an astronaut could work easily and efficiently outside the spacecraft, something that had proven difficult on previous EVAs. You know, these EVAs are talking about full of struggle, full of fatigue, and Gemini 12 was set, set up to counteract that. Yeah, so to prep, their craft had extra hand and footholds added to it. Again, learning and growing as we go. And underwater work was added to Aldrin's training, right? So this is something that they still do to this day. Um, because the buoyancy, you can practice for space in a pool. And so Buzz Aldrin did that. Um, and all in all, he spent two hours and 20 minutes outside the capsule. He was taking pictures, of course. Again, he gathered a micrometeorite collector. Got it this time. Yes. And there were two more stand-up EVAs, and they also went off without any issue. Again, correcting issues in previous missions and getting it right. That is the story of Gemini, and it's totally the story of Gemini 12. But wait! Yeah. The last Gemini mission could not escape the curse of the Agena. Okay. The one thing <laughs> that Gemini could not defeat was a Gina. <laughs> uh, the crew docked manually after a rendezvous radar failed, and a climb to a higher altitude was canceled due to a problem discovered in the Agena's booster. Uh, the crew, however, was able to tether the two craft together while station keeping. Uh, so again, you know, upping the stakes a little bit, having a tether between them, uh, you know, more dangerous and more complex than just station keeping. So they weren't, weren't able to do everything they wanted to do, but... Um, it also didn't try to kill them, so I guess that's a that's a fair balance. Gina is the worst. I'm just saying it's the worst. <laughs> uh, a lot of more science took place on this flight, including experiments uh, with the effects of low gravity on frog eggs. Interesting huh? space frogs. Space frogs! And a lot more photography, of course. Many, many pictures. And they splashed down on November 15, 1966, ending the run of Gemini missions. That's it. We're all done. November 66. There was interest shown by several parties to use the Gemini platform for future missions. Uh, Advanced Gemini is a collection of proposals by McDonnell Aircraft to use an upgraded version of the capsule to fly a cislunar mission and even achieved a crewed landing on the moon with the capsule itself, all with less cost than Apollo. You know, I never took Advanced Gemini. I did intro to Gemini oh, yeah. and then I just bailed out. Man, you should have stuck with it. Interesting idea where they're just saying, look, hey, we built this McDonnell aircraft, I assume, built the Gemini capsule. And therefore, it's like, no, they you can just use this. Just keep using this. It'll be great. And they did not win the Apollo contract. No. <laughs> uh, related proposals, including bringing back parts of the Agena target vehicle no. as a docking tool Don't or a lifeboat <laughs> in case something went wrong in cislunar space. Um, yeah, that seems like a bad idea. These ideas came after... Uh, McDonnell lost its bid to build yep. Apollo to there North American Aviation. And guess what? Nothing came of that uh, proposal either. They they weren't going to give up. Boy. Up next, they submitted Big Gemini, which is a bunch of proposals, uh, made in August of 1969 to take the Gemini capsule and just make it bigger, to enlarge it, to use the platform, but on, but on a bigger scale. For missions that honestly ring through them, uh, mirror early space shuttle flights. Uh, so there were two baseline spacecraft to find, uh, nine crew uh, modified version called Gemini B, and uh, a 12 crew named Mid, Mid, Min, Mod, Big G. The name's not great. Mm. Uh, so basically these are new, you know, state-of-the-art subsystems. Uh, there's one called like, Advanced Big G that would push it even further. Basically, Let's take the core technology and build something bigger and more capable. 
But like Advanced Gemini, this program never made it past a bunch of reports and graphs. It really does feel like McDonnell and McDonnell Douglas eventually, I mean, they were just trying to, we've got this capsule. Certainly we could do something with it to make more money off of this thing. Can we, can we make it bigger? Can we use it for other things? Like they kept trying to find a way to uh, further, you know, return their investment in this platform. And, uh, you know, bless them for trying. The U.S. Air Force, by the way, was a potential uh, customer on Gemini hardware. Uh, they decided to use a modification of the Gemini spacecraft as a crew vehicle for something the Air Force called the Manned Orbital Laboratory. And uh, But rather than buy a new spacecraft, what they decided to do was take the Gemini 2 spacecraft and refurbish it and fly it again on top of a mock-up of the Manned Orbital Laboratory, which is uh, the, the idea here was an Air Force mission with this capsule plus the lab module. And they sent that into space with a Titan 3C rocket. Um, this is a footnote in history that I think neither of us had ever even heard of. But it is the first time that the same craft had flown in space twice. Yeah, it's cool, right? Who, who knew? Yeah, I had no idea. Am I recycled? I mean, it's really, it's a recycled aluminum can, basically. They're like, yeah, Gemini 2. Nobody's using that. Let's shoot into space at the Air Force. And and McDonnell Douglas is probably like, totally, yeah, let's do it. Because they're going to buy a lot of these. And uh, they didn't. Yeah, the the, the MOL, which I don't think I'd ever even heard about. Maybe because it's an Air Force project, I'd never heard about the MOL at all. Yeah, it's a a weird little little chapter. Uh, This proposal basically you had the capsule you would have an attached living module for we're talking 40 day missions jason which was Ooh. way above anything that had been done at the time and this is all based around reconnaissance uh, it was canceled in 1969 uh when it was shown that unmanned reconnaissance via satellites could achieve the same objectives much much cheaper so what you're saying, Stephen, is that the Air Force's big idea was to send some guys up into space with cameras, with cameras. Yeah, and take basically. pictures from space and then come back down and say, we got some pictures for you. And then uh, everybody else was like, or we could just have satellites do that without people. And that, that, wor- that worked out. And that's why we don't have like 150 people up in space right now taking pictures of the weather <laughs> because yeah. uh, the, the probes can do that by themselves. They don't need us. Yeah. Um, actually, the first U.S. space station, which was Skylab mm-hmm. in the 70s, um, used Apollo hardware. So there you go. <laughs> Sorry, Gemini. <laughs> Didn't happen. You know, you know that really had to kill McDonnell McDonald Douglas. Douglas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's burn. Burn. Oh well, it happened. So they tried to make new Gemini, but other than the test flight of the uh, reuse of the Gemini two, it just didn't happen. This was the end for Gemini and the end for our uh, series on the Gemini program. It's been a ride. Yes, you and me in a little capsule, not capsule. docking with an Agena. Thank goodness. Uh, if you want to find show notes this week, you can do so at relay.fm/liftoff/sixty-two. Uh, you can find a bunch of stuff on the website, a uh, way to get in touch with us via email, or you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Jason is there as J Snell, J-S-N-E-L-L. Jason writes the, the awesome sixcolors.com. You can find me on Twitter at ISMH, and I write 512pixels.net. 
And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. See you next year. Adios. Adios.